Well, today we come to the subject of Christ's threefold office as mediator. And uh, the, this is really sort of a study in historical theology because it, it really was derived largely by John Calvin, although it's firmly rooted in Scripture. But this, this construct of the threefold office was developed by John Calvin and then later developed by Francis Turretin and others. And it's, uh, it's, it's a staple item in Reformed theology. There's no question about that. But as we have looked at the person of Christ, now we come to uh, a consideration of the work of Christ. And uh, so we're, we're going to be looking at the ways in which Christ has served the, the eternal purposes of God uh, and as our mediator. And so when you look at this, this construct of the threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, that's inseparably linked to his work as mediator. And when we talk about someone who is a mediator, that, um, that should cause you to think there must be uh, a, a gap, there must be a disparity. Uh, I've been involved in mediation in the past, and that, that always involves two or more parties that are at odds with each other. And that's, that's exactly the, the condition in which we find ourselves, is without the work of Christ, we would be inseparably uh, at odds with each other, or irreconcilably, I, I get, really is what I should say, at odds with each other. And so in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, engaged in a, an agreement. Some people call it a covenant. Some people are not comfortable with that term, but, but it's, I, I think it's a covenant. But, but it's certainly an agreement, an undertaking in eternity past to accomplish redemption for a definite number of people for whom Christ died. Uh, we've looked at that in, in, etern- in times past uh, when we considered the design of the atonement and we looked at definite atonement. It's very clear from the scripture that in eternity past that the Father decreed that he would set his saving mercies upon a certain number. And that doesn't mean a small number. Sometimes people balk at that, that concept of a number. They think it's a tiny number. It's not. It's a, a great number. It's a vast number. But it's a definite number, and it's a number that that, that God in eternity past has decreed would be so. And so the Father and the Son particularly engaged in a work, uh, and the Holy Spirit clearly is part of this triune initiative to save people. And so when we look at prophet, priest, and king, we're looking at Christ as mediator, and we're looking at his works. We've previously looked at the person of Christ so today we'll be looking at an overview of the threefold office of Christ and then developing that, Lord willing, uh, in the in ensuing weeks as prophet, priest, and king. But in order to sort of develop this in introduction, um, when we consider the work of Christ, uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? to save sinners. And then Paul affixed his own attestation there, among whom I am foremost of all. He saw the the great mercy of God toward him. But Christ came to save sinners. And that involves the calling of Christ, and it involves the components or the aspects of his calling to his his threefold office. And the calling of, of of the Son is an action of the Father whereby he bound his willing son. There was no disparity in terms of intention. There was complete congruity between the desire of the father and the work of the son. 
uh, to engage in this work, and this comes from Joel Beakey, he uses the word an eternal covenant. Some people would say an eternal agreement, but it's very clear that there was an, there was an eternity past an undertaking that was agreed to between the Father and the Son to come and to save people. That, that's very clear. And, and so uh, Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we hear, we have a, a, a passage that talks in perpetuity of Christ as a priest. And this was decreed by the Father. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is part of God's decree that the Son would be a priest forever in perpetuity, um, according to the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah 53 what was the purpose of all of this? The Lord was pleased to crush him, the Son. This is Isaiah 53, that wonderful passage, the, the Messianic passage, one of the servant sections of Isaiah, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And, and this would not be the end of things. Certainly there would be a resurrection and an ascension, and the Son would have accomplished and did accomplish his purpose. He will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So all of this speaks about this undertaking in eternity past to, for the Son to come forth and to do exactly what he did, uh, which is to save uh, sinners, to save an elect seed. Luke 22, Behold, the, the hand of one betraying me is with mine on the table. This is set in the Last Supper. For indeed the Son of Man is going, what? As it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So all of this was determined in eternity past. Acts 4, there's a sermon where there's this message that, uh, that there were those who were coming after the Lord Jesus. Uh, they gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. How, did, how was Jesus described? As one who was anointed. And that's very important because when we look at the office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, all of this looks to Christ, and Christ is a title. It literally means an anointed one. And so when we see Christ literally fulfilling all of these offices that were inaugurated in the Old Testament as a prophet and a priest and a king, each of them were anointed. And so Christ is anointed to fulfill this purpose. And, and it goes on in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So all of these things that took place were agreed to and determined according to a decree of the Father in eternity past. In Hebrews 5, speaking of the Lord Jesus as priest, no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So there's a definite appointment uh, to this office. And so Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest. This was not something that Jesus did on his own initiative. He did this because it was commissioned by the Father. Because the Father says, he said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, and we read this just a moment ago, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, and we could, there are many passages we could look at, but we, we need to recognize that the perpetual service of Christ as, off, as prophet, priest, and king is instrumental in his accomplishing this purpose for which he came. So it was not only in his life, but he continues to serve in these three different offices as prophet, priest, and king. And he holds this priesthood in perpetuity, in eternity, because he continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. I can't overemphasize how important that is. 
that Christ literally today is officiating as high priest on our behalf, on behalf of his people. We need to recognize that. We'll develop that when we talk specifically about the priesthood of Christ, but he's every bit as much a priest in heaven as he was on earth. And so he is, why is that important? Uh, verse 25, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the priesthood of Christ in heaven, continually in, per- in perpetuity for eternity, living to make intercession. Well, this commission of the Father and the Son to engage in this saving work had an end in Isaiah 42. Another one of those servant passages, Behold my servant, and it anticipates the Lord Jesus, the, the anointed one, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. And when we see that phrase, I put my spirit upon him, that, that should cause us, because we know our Old Testament, to think, when did the Holy Spirit come upon people? It's when they were anointed. Even this morning I was reading in the, in the Old Testament scriptures about Samuel um, anointing David. And, and, uh, and so he, he anointed him to the office of king, and, and the spirit came upon him. And, and so the anointing and the, and the coming of the spirit are contemporaneous with each other. And you should be thinking about Matthew 3.16. What did John the Baptist do? He, he baptized the Lord Jesus. And what, what happened on that time? The Holy Spirit came upon him. And he was identified as the Christ, the anointed one, for ordaining the means. And so 1 Peter 1.20, he, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he's appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So all of this goes all the way back to eternity past, and it will continue even today. It's it's eternal. All of this is according to the eternal purposes of the Father and and the Son, doing exactly what what the, the Father sent him to do. And that's what John three seventeen. God did not send in his Son into the world to judge the world. He's coming later to do that. But that the world might be what? Saved through him. Now, when we look at the threefold office of Christ, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, this has its root, at least this terminology in, in the Reformation and with John Calvin in particular. John Calvin was in the 16th century, 1509 to 1564, but he wrote about this, this doctrine of the threefold office of Christ in his institutes, uh, which were published in the, the mid-1500s. So, top of page three, I've got excerpts from two catechisms, and they, they both essentially say the same thing. Uh, so, we, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, again, a, a reformed document, 1647, it says essentially the same thing as our own catechism. I've got our, our, the CFPC catechism reproduced for you here below. The, the, the difference is that when we talk about the, the offices of Christ, it's interesting that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism did he execute as a redeemer. And so the offices are always attached to his function. The function is to be mediator. The function is to be redeemer. So when we think of prophet, priest, and king, you should immediately be thinking prophet, priest, and king to do what? To be a, to be a mediator, to be a redeemer, because that, that's why he came, to fulfill and does continue to fulfill that role. Christ as our redeemer executes the offices, the threefold office of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. This next part is very important, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So if you're not familiar with the states of Christ and his humiliation and exaltation, his humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, 
undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That's the humiliation of Christ. So when we talk about that term, the humiliation of Christ, it's talking about his incarnation and all of the suffering which he underwent as the incarnate Son of God. The exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. I I point these things out simply because he is prophet, priest, and king, not only in his incarnation and his earthly suffering, but in in his victory, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his present work as prophet, priest, and king. He continues to serve as prophet, priest, and king. Then I've reproduced for you, I, I, I can't develop this just because we don't have time, but, but we, we, this comes directly from the CFBC Catechism. What offices of Christ? Three offices. What are they? Prophet, priest, and king. And then I've reproduced for you the, the texts that support each of these statements. So you can, you can look at this. I just, again, I've reproduced all of this for your reading, but flip over with me to page 7 because the, the pages in between basically are, are the the texts that support uh, each of these, and I will develop that, uh, Lord willing, in the weeks that follow, one each week, hopefully, is prophet, priest, and king. So we'll be looking specifically at these passages. But why did Jesus come, and what, how did he serve as prophet, priest, and king? And the focus here is what has Jesus done for his people? What does he do for his people? And why did he do these things for his people? Because that's, that's really what the threefold office of Christ is all about. There's an article by Kim Riddlebarger, and, and he begins by saying that the, the, the diagnosis is not very good. So you, imagine you're standing in front of a doctor and he's assessing your condition. And he comes in and he has a really grave appearance on his face and he says, I have bad news. You're ignorant, you're guilty, and you're corrupt. That's what, that's what God says to us. You're ignorant, you're guilty, and you're corrupt. God doesn't mince words. This is exactly our condition. And we, we, we will never appreciate the work of Christ until we recognize that, that this is our condition, and that's why Jesus came. We find ourselves as fallen sinners ravaged by the threefold consequence of our sins. This is something that Francis Turretin developed in in a very effective way. We'll look at this momentarily. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Here's here's the assessment of the divine physician as he looks at the condition of a man outside of Christ. Your mind is darkened. Your thoughts are continually evil. Your mind is clouded by sin and ignorant of the things of God. You have exchanged God's truth for a lie. Your minds are blinded by the God of this age. Your sin has blinded you to the truth of God. Intoxicated by your own self-righteousness, like boastful drunkards, you stumble through life seeking to justify yourselves before God. That's harsh language, but it is exactly our condition. When we're speaking to an unsaved person, this is exactly the condition that they're in. This is the condition I was in. This is a condition you were in before God in his infinite mercy saved you. Your mind was darkened. You were in bondage to one who hated you, Satan himself. 
You had rejected the truth of God. You would never have come to the truth of God had he not intervened on your behalf. And so we, I, I resonate with this last statement. Intoxicated by our own self-righteousness, like boastful drunkards, we stumble through life seeking to justify ourselves before God. If ever there was a phrase that characterized my life before 1971, and even to some extent I still struggle with self-righteousness, I still do. It, it continues to be an issue for me, as I suspect it may be for some of you as, others as well. But this, this, was, this was a diagnosis that would very accurately have described me before God and His infinite mercy brought me to the awareness that I was lost before Him. And I, something radical had to happen. And that something radical is all the work of Christ. So we labor under this weight of our, our guilt, our, the penalty for the infractions of the law of God. And not only are we guilty for our own individual violations of God's law and thought, word, and need, but we're rendered guilty for our participation in the sin of Adam. What he's saying is, is that we're guilty on multiple counts. We're guilty because we, we continually transgress the perfect holy law of God just just a countless number of violations of God's holy law. And we're guilty because Adam's sin is imputed to us. And that's why when we talk about the work of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's talking about the imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. We've talked about justification involving two aspects, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. I'm not sure I I like active and passive, but those are the terms that are used. The the, the passive obedience of Christ is his cross work, where he took our sins upon himself as our substitute, and when he said to to Telestai, it is finished, that was his acclamation that, guess what, it's all paid for. The wrath of the Father is propitiated, fully satisfied, in, in complete finishing of the work of the Father's intent. Not just sins past, but sins present, sins future. Not just sins for those who were standing around him, but sins for those who would later come to believe in him. All of those sins, those who preceded him, those who were standing at the foot of the cross, who would later come to Christ, including possibly the centurion, who said, this must be God. For us, all of those sins, past, present, and future, atone for on Christ to tell us die. it is paid for in full, debt discharged. That's the passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ is something that we could never do, just, just like we could never exhaust the wrath of God because that's why hell is eternal. The active obedience of Christ is that work of, of Christ in perfectly fulfilling the law of God. And, and that righteousness that he actually earned is imputed to us. And in both of those aspects are, are integral and essential to us having a place in heaven. No, no hope without it. As a matter of fact, J. Gresham Machen, his last telegram he sent as he was dying, he, he talked about the active obedience of Christ, and he said, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No, no hope without it. Sometimes we don't understand. It's not just the, the propitiation of the wrath of the Father that was so essential to us having a place in heaven. It's, it's the fact that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Had that not occurred, we would not have a place in heaven because we're, because we're not righteous. But all of that is done for us. And so that's the point that, that Kim Myrtle Barker is making, is that we're guilty because not only of our acts of sin, because we're sinners in, in Adam. Top of page 8. 
Psalm 103, uh, pardon me, 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Well, God does mark iniquities. And so none of us can stand outside of Christ. But because we are in Christ, we can stand with complete assurance because God does mark iniquities. That's not just a hypothetical, but the re, what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 130 is, had God not taken my sin and imputed those to Christ, I could not stand before you today, God. But because of Christ, I can stand before you. Because you do take into account all sin. God does not ignore any sin. He does not wink at sin. He does not commute the penalty of sin. He doesn't minimize the sin. If God should mark iniquities, who could stand? And outside of Christ, the answer is, I can't. I will fall before the wrath of God forever. But because of Jesus, praise God, we can stand only because we're clothed in his righteousness. And so the, the physician goes on and he says, this destructive pollution from the inherited sinful condition infects every part from the moment of conception. This, he's, he's doing a diagnosis and it's not good. It's the guilt and pollution from this sin that makes us so miserable. Sin leaves us ignorant, guilty, and polluted and therefore utterly miserable. The diagnosis is bad and the prognosis is far worse. Why is the prognosis worse? Because there's no human solution for this. There's no, nothing on earth that can possibly rectify this, this intolerable burden of ignorance, guilt, and corruption. But there is good news, and that is that while no earthly doctors have a cure, there is a miraculous cure. And that cure is in Christ, and his work is prophet, priest, and king. As I reflect on this, I think it's, it's certainly providential that we consider this in anticipation of the Lord's Supper. I hope, I pray that I will be occupied with this, and I pray you'll be occupied with this. As you think about, as you hold those elements, and as you remember the work of Christ, remember the condition that you were in. Remember what Jesus came to do. And so it was Calvin who looked at this, and he, he codified all of this. This was really a Reformation doctrine, and, and it's not a new doctrine. It's always been in Scripture. It's always been there, but, but it's, it's a doctrine that really was brought to the light in the Reformation but by John Calvin specifically, and he was talking about how each of these offices, a prophet, priest, and king, serve as links between Christ as the anointed one and these offices in the Old Testament where we have prophets, we have priests, and we have kings. All of them serve, none of them perfectly, but they gave examples of what would ultimately be done by the work of Christ. The prophet would be a spokesman for God. A priest would be one who would render sacrifices. The king would be one who would rule. And none of them did it perfectly, but there is one who did each of those three roles perfectly, and each of these offices that are inaugurated in the Old Testament are pictures of what Jesus came to do in his saving work on our behalf. And that's why we, when we consider this, as you celebrate your own salvation in Christ, you should be thinking, God, I, I thank you, I praise you that you are my prophet, that you are my priest, and you are my king. So top of page 9. That's really the point that, that is being made here, is that, that this title, Christ, means anointed one. It's not a name. Christ is a title. The anointed one. He was anointed. Why? Well, again, each of these offices in the Old Testament were anointed. They, they, the, the prophets were anointed. The priests were anointed. The king were anointed. Christ was anointed. <clears throat> but he was anointed to fulfill all of this perfectly 
in accordance with the purpose which was agreed to in eternity past between the Father and the Son. All of this goes, again, all the way back to eternity past, part of God's decree. And his decrees are always executed with perfect perfection. And so, second paragraph, Calvin connects the incarnation, Christ taking on human flesh, to his work as mediator in looking at each of these roles that he fulfilled as prophet, priest, and king perfectly, fulfilling each of those. Then Francis Turretin, who came 50, 60 years later, uh, a, a, a Genevan uh, a Swiss theologian, this is so helpful for me. Turretin talked about the, tri- the triple cure. Earlier, I mentioned the fact that, that the physician comes in and his diagnosis is so somber and so humanly hopeless. You're ignorant, you're blind. You're, that's what he means by ignorant. We, we think of ignorant as, as a pejorative term. It's just the fact that you really don't know how bad off you are. You, you literally have no idea how desperate your condition is. You don't know the law of God. You don't know any righteousness but ignorant, guilty, and, and corrupt. And Turretin talked about the, the, this triple cure, and, and this is exactly why Jesus came. And this, this threefold misery of men introduced by sin, uh, ignorance, guilt, and, and the bondage to sin, was all of these, these great problems were solved by Christ. And, and so I'm just going to read this. Ignorance is healed by the prophetic and we'll unpack that. But guilt is healed by the priestly, and the tyranny and corruption of sin by the kingly office. What do we mean by that? Well, prophetic light scatters the darkness of error. The merit of the priest takes away guilt and procures a reconciliation for us. The power of the king removes the bondage of sin and death. The prophet shows God to us. That's what Jesus did. He took on human flesh. No one has seen the Father, but he came to reveal the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He exegeted the Father to us. He, he showed us everything we need to know about God because he is God. The fullness of, of Godhead is in him. But the prophet shows God to us. The priest leads us to God. Earthly priests had to offer sacrifices not only for themselves, but for those for whom they mediated. And, and they offered continual sacrifices. And they were just as corrupt as the men that, and, and women that they were serving. But, but we have a, a, a high priest who is holy, harmless, and undefiled, the Lord Jesus, perfect, who did not need to offer a sacrifice for himself, but did himself offer himself a sacrifice. Why? For his people. That one sacrifice, never to be added to, never to be amended, never to be replicated. That's why the Mass is such a horrendous thing, such a horrendous, ugly thing. One sacrifice in eternity, and that Jesus made that sacrifice. But the priest leads us to God, and the king joins us together and glorifies us with God. The prophet enlightens the mind by the spirit of illumination. Who sent the, the Holy Spirit? He, he came, the, the, the Son sent the Holy Spirit. He was also sent by the Father, but, but the Holy Spirit was commissioned by the Son. The priest, by the spirit of consolation, tranquilizes the heart and conscience. The king, by the spirit of sanctification, subdues these rebellious affections. So the point that Turretin is making is that this very dire, hopeless from a human condition standpoint that we find ourselves in outside of Christ, of being ignorant and sinful and and, and corrupt, uh, are all dealt with by prophet, priest, and king. 
When we talk about being ignorant, not knowing the truth, who came to show us the truth? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If no one comes to the Father but by me, he, he revealed to us by his word and by his spirit everything that we need to know for our salvation. We would not have known that had he not revealed that. But he did in his prophetic office. And he continues to serve as prophet. The, who, the Holy Spirit continues to work. Who sent the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds? The Son and the Father. And so how do we understand the word of God? The Holy Spirit causes us to understand. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. How do we appropriate this truth? It's a gift of the Spirit. And so he gives us this life. But so we, with each of these offices and the, the, the guilt completely satisfied by the work of the Lord Jesus and one who continues to intercede for us today, this very moment, and for all eternity, he, will, he continues to intercede for his people. He will always intercede for his people. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet what? Without sin. Hebrews tells us that. We have a high priest in heaven who has suffered greatly. He knows everything that we, we, we will encounter, and, and he understands, and he intercedes for us. And we have a king who subdued us. More, more on that later. At this point, I'm going to go over to page 12, this little article about the threefold office of Christ you can, you can look at. But I, I want to move over to page 12. found this to be really helpful. There, there was a, a controversy, top of page 12, and it goes back, if you've read the, the, the Gospel according to, to Jesus, um, it was written a number of years ago, it dealt with this controversy about lordship salvation. I'm not sure I really like that term, lordship salvation, but, but it, it's, that's a term that's used. And, and the question was, can, can Jesus be Savior without being Lord? And the answer to that is no. And, and there was a great deal of, of debate back and forth on this whole thing. And, and so there were those who were saying, well, if you're adding lordship, you're adding a condition to salvation. And so, of course, there's, you know, salvation is a completely a gift and you can't be adding any human initiative on this thing. And then there was a question about well, what does it mean to be truly saved? And, and so back and forth, lots of controversy. And it really probably died out some years ago, but the, 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 it was a controversy sometime. What's really interesting, and I found this, this article to be, be very helpful, was if we look at the threefold office of Christ, it literally is impossible for us to accept the Lord Jesus as our prophet and our priest without accepting him as king. And, and so that, that's simply a point. That, and that, that line of argumentation was really never brought to the forefront. It should have been. It, it, that's, that's the most compelling argument I think that could possibly be made. When you look at what Jesus came to do and what he did do, he came as prophet, and he is prophet. He came as, as king, and he a priest, and, and he is priest, and he came as king, and, and for those for whom he saved. He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. And, and so, down at the bottom of page 12, Christ functions as God's prophet, revealing to us the will of God, speaking in God's name with God's full authority. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, John 14, top of page 13. Jesus says of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This actually goes back to Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses said there's going to be a prophet that God will bring forth, a final prophet. And Peter, in Acts chapter 3, says that's Jesus. He identifies that messianic prediction 
in Deuteronomy 18:15 with the Lord Jesus. But Jesus is, is the ultimate prophet, and he, can, in his work as prophetic office, continues through the work of the Spirit. That's why at the beginning that I was talking about prophet, priest, and king, both in his estate of humiliation and his state of exaltation. Sometimes we look at prophet, priest, and king strictly in his incarnation, and, and sometimes we don't recognize that he continues and, and, and will always continue as prophet, priest, and king. And so today he is prophet, priest, and king for you, it, 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 those who are in Christ. And, and so through the work of the Spirit, he grants illumination, this ability that, that, we, that is God's gift to us, whereby we can understand and appropriate this truth, without which we would not. These things would be alien to us. 1 Corinthians 2 makes it very clear that the, the, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They have to be revealed to him. And so we, we simply don't have the spiritual capacity or inclination to take spiritual truth and understand it and appropriate it. But praise God, the Spirit of God does that work as he regenerates us and as he grants illumination. In his priestly office, he, he, he does that work of propitiating the, the Father, but he continues to offer sacrifices. And his kingly office continues today, and, and it will reach its consummation when he comes to, to suppress all evil and to judge all evil and to cast Satan himself into the, 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 the pit of hell, uh, the, the furnace, lake of fire, and, and it will continue for all eternity. Uh, all of, his, uh, all of the, the opponents of the Lord Jesus will ultimately be destroyed. And that's what Psalm 2 is all about. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? And God holds that spirit with derision and he laughs at that. That's not an expression that you find often in Scripture about God laughing, but he laughs in derision. It's not humorous. What a, what a ridiculous proposition, those who would oppose God. That's really the, the point that's being made, and it is inconceivable that anyone would raise their fist against the one who made all creation and rules everything. And yet that's what Psalm 2 is saying. All of that will be crushed without compromise. All of it will be utterly destroyed. And who will destroy that? Jesus will destroy that. And there will be none that can stand because God does mark iniquity without compromise. But then he goes on at, this, at the bottom of this page, if the debaters of the Lordship controversy had considered the threefold office of Christ, the debate would have been over before it started. No one would have even thought to ask, can I accept Jesus as my prophet and priest, but not as my king? And the answer is, of course not. It's inseparable. Jesus is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. You can't have two-thirds, so to speak. He is, he is your king. And if you're in Christ, your king is Jesus today and will always be your king. And he is your prophet and he is your priest and will always be your prophet and your priest. And I, as I just in conclusion, I was thinking about a hymn that we have sung from time to time on page 14 by Isaac Watts that uh, I think serves as a good reminder for us all. And by the way, when we, we have these hymns, I, I, I hope you're picking up on some of the theological elements that are here. When I, when I sang this, I turned to Diane and I said, these are the threefold offices of Christ. Look at that. Here, it's right here. And, and that's the prophet, priest, and king. And so I, I, I formatted it a little wrong. Uh, the, the third stanza actually is attached to the second stanza, so you'll have to forgive me with that. But the, the lyrics are all there. Great prophet of my God, 
My tongue would bless thy name. By thee the joyful news of our salvation came, the joyful news of sins forgiven, of hell subdued, and peace with heaven. How do we know the truth? Jesus has revealed it to us. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. May guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. Do you see the magnificent words that are there? It's talking about his past work and his present work there. Now, this is Isaac Watts. This isn't, this isn't inspired truth, but it, it's based on inspired truth. His powerful blood did once atone, one sacrifice, and now it pleads before the throne. His priesthood, not only in his incarnation, but in his, but in his present rule over us as our, as our high priest for all eternity. Then the third stanza, my Savior and my Lord. There you go. If you want a question about lordship, salvation, it's right there. My Savior and my Lord, my conqueror and my king, thy scepter and thy sword, thy reigning grace I sing. Thine is the power, behold, I sit in willing bonds beneath thy feet. Why did Paul identify himself as a doulos, as a, as a slave? Because that's exactly what we are. It just, thine is the power, behold, I sit in willing bonds beneath thy feet. So here we, there, this is a, a song by Isaac Watts, a wonderful hymn by Isaac Watts, and I, I couldn't help but reproduce it for you because as we sang this hymn a, a little while ago, I thought, there you go, there's a threefold office of Christ right there, and it summarizes it for us. So it gives us at least, a, Isaac Watts had his good theology, didn't he? And that's, uh, that's prophet of my God. Great High Priest, my Conqueror and my King, my Savior and my Lord. So there you go. Again, that's, that's Lordship, Salvation, all solved for you. You don't have to worry about it. The Scripture has solved it. Isaac Watts has reminded us of it. So you can sing it with boldness and recognize that Jesus is King. He's your Lord and he's your King. So as, you, as we think about this, this is just an overview. We'll, we'll deal with this a little bit more in depth as, we, as the weeks go along. But, uh, but this is a, an introduction to the threefold office of Christ. Remember that these offices are inseparably linked to why he came as our mediator, as our redeemer. And why he came is a fulfillment of an agreement and undertaking of the Father and the Son in eternity past to, to accomplish a saving work. So it was not a reaction. It was a decree. And God didn't say, oops, mistake down on planet Earth. No, it, it was decreed in eternity past that the, the Son would come and do this. And why did this happen? To bring glory to God. We are, we are vessels of mercy. We, we are living monuments to God's grace. We are walking examples of God's matchless mercy, and we should bear witness of that. That should completely fill our hearts and our minds. That's why we gather, but as corporately, is to worship Christ. We, we come to worship Him as our prophet as our priest, and as our king, because that's exactly who he is. That those are the offices for which he came, and those are the offices that he, that he continually and for all eternity will occupy and fulfill in perfect fulfillment of the plan of God that was decreed in eternity past. Father, we come and we've only maybe skimmed the surface of these, these glorious truths of, of the saving work of our Savior. 
But Lord, particularly as we anticipate the Lord's Supper, may these majestic truths occupy our hearts and fill our hearts with thanksgiving and and a a debt of praise to him as who came to to give his life, his, his own shed blood, his perfect righteousness for us is the one who came to disclose and to show us the truth without which we would be eternally lost and to pay the price without which we would be eternally lost and to rule us as the beneficiaries of his saving mercies. We come to honor Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.